Hello there, we are your host Vivek and Pavitra from the Agile Coach Podcast. In this podcast, we bring fresh perspectives to you through our interviews with thought leaders in Agile Coaching, facilitation, business analysis, and product management roles. Enjoy! Um, hey everybody, today we have Banu Raguraman uh, as our guest. Banu, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, just to kind of talk a little bit about her background. She's got a decade, uh, years, uh, about a decade of experience in product and business analysis as an analyst. Uh, she's currently a director of uh, business process and analysis uh, for Infotech Research Group. Uh, prior to that, she was a product leader and a digital product manager. Uh, so we're hoping to have some really good conversations around product and our experience and leadership. I would like to start with, um, I'd like to know what have you been up to? What kind of work are you doing? Uh, so kind of give us an uh, give us an idea of what you're up to. Sure, Vivek. Thank you so much. First of all, it's it's been a pleasure so far interacting with you. And thank you for having me on this um, podcast as well. Uh, in terms of my background, as you said, I've been in the tech space for about 10 years now, and uh, that has kind of culminated into various roles, and it prepared me for the role that I'm currently in. Um, at Infotech Research Group, I'm working in the strategy department, uh, specifically with the internal operations. You can call it the central PMO, project management space, uh, but pretty much supporting the different stakeholders that I work with, with anything that they need to make sure that their business is running smoothly. Um, but on the side, I also help with any other uh, projects that they need, which might be new products that they're trying to release or new things that they're trying to build to offer their clients. So that's basically my, my core work. Um, apart from that, on the side, I really enjoy public speaking and mentoring and meeting a lot of new folks the same way I met you as well. Um, and there's a lot more to learn from different people because they all have different experiences to bring in. And that makes me more effective as a person. Um, and it also makes me more effective as a leader and um, leading some of the initiatives that I work on. Yeah. Banu, um, I've actually gone through some of your content, some of the live webinars that you've done. Mm-hmm. And... I really wanted to bring you to the podcast and you know ask you these questions because you've got a really um, technical skills. You, you've been an analyst, you've got product skills. Um, and on top of that, you've done some really good work around emotional intelligence and empathy and like leadership. So um, what I would like to uh, dig in a little bit uh, more today is a little bit more on the uh, relationship building side, empathy and leadership side. Um, so my question to you is, uh, let's just kind of talk about how do you view empathy uh, in leadership? Yeah, so it's it's interesting you put both of those words together because most people don't see empathy as something that's intrinsic to being a leader, uh, simply because it handles the side of um decision-making that's not necessarily seen as logical. It's almost seen as something outside of the domain of logic, mm-hmm. whereby people are like, oh, you don't want to you know, make decisions with a hot head. You should have a cool head and you're not supposed to give in to emotions. And therefore, you need to be very logical. Let's look at the facts. And mm-hmm. empathy is really something associated with feelings and therefore they keep it aside. But mm. over time, I've realized that you can still have, um, you can still make decisions based on emotions as long as they take into account how the behavior of the person changes based on those emotions. And that's really what empathy is about. If you don't really understand the problem and the problem has an emotional component to it, you're almost 
removing that co component out of the whole equation and therefore your solution is only going to be half as effective or you know 75% as effective depending on how much emotional aspect was brought in um, there is even a quote that says people forget about you know what you said to them or what you did to them but they'll remember how you made them feel and yeah. that really speaks to the amount of impact emotions have and we talk about customer experience we talk about user experience and none of these things are really uh, based on fact, but they're based on studies and research that have been done for so long to understand, hey, this is why users interact the way that, that they do. And if it was something scientific, we, we could have gotten it out of the book. We could have explained it like evolution or we could have explained it like oxygen and carbon dioxide. But empathy is something that you have to dig into because every human being is different. And um, just like, you know, even in medicine, the doctors say like, medicine is an ex experimental science, right? Like you have to experiment on every person. Generally, people react to a certain way with each medication, but they're not gonna react the same way. Um, and I think in the last year, we have seen plenty of examples of that when we talk about vaccinations and how people have reacted to various uh, things. So how this plays into leadership is that when you have a team of even two people, they're going to be distinctly different. Um, yeah. Culture really speaks to what drives a person in terms of the passion like they both might be passionate towards a certain topic but how they react to certain scenarios and how they bring that co component to the table is going to be very different so as a leader if I don't know that Vivek reacts in this way and Banu reacts in this way then I'm not going to be able to provide them with the right kind of leadership that they need mm. some people work well with micromanagement they need things to be planned they need things to be you know out in the open and that's how you bring them into that level of comfort and comfort cannot be measured by quantitative things it's a qualitative thing it's something that comes along with empathy so yeah. unless you make that person comfortable in that environment they're not going to give their best um, mm. same thing with the other person they might be someone who works well with a macro manager meaning you know you give them the task they'll get the work done you don't have to keep nagging them for them comfort yeah. comes in a different way so right. Empathy is very important in leadership these days because unless you understand what drives people, um, especially when you think about influential leadership, gone are the days when someone is sitting at the head of the table and you know cracking a whip at you going, I'm your boss, you do what I tell you to do. It's, you know, we are moving away from those days. Um, mm -hmm. And when you think about like product management, um, when you're thinking about CEOs that define a vision, mm -hmm. um, CEOs that are able to evoke um, the same kind of passion that they have towards a product. Um, mm -hmm. When you think about someone like, you know, ex-president uh, Barack Obama, he drove people through passion. It's because he spoke with empathy. He understood what people are going through and therefore he knew exactly what to say to his audience. Um, and at the same time, the work that he did in the office as well, not to turn this into a political conversation, but it really speaks to um, leadership that really understands the people that they're trying to lead. Um, and I think that's where empathy becomes like a core crux because once you figure out what people people need, what's their pain point, everything else can be built around that. And therefore, it becomes a more wholesome solution than just saying, oh, this is your problem. This is going to be my solution because it's completely based on facts. Yeah, got you. So that's that's great. Thanks for giving us that that overview. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to our audience is um, let's empathize uh, on their behalf. Right. So our audience here is usually product leader, product manager, business analyst, scrum master, 
mm-hmm. uh, most of the roles they're not in a direct um, authority or they yeah. nobody directly reports to them right yeah uh, and they have to work with all kind of uh, folks stakeholders um, leaders from other organization program managers and uh, and they actually have to influence get information get them to do something um, so for you how have you navigated that how have you worked with um, stakeholders um, in your organization or outside of your organization and and use empathy and influence? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a good question. Influential leadership is very challenging simply because of the fact that I mentioned you're not in direct control of what's gonna happen to this person. Yeah. But apart from that, it is also the fact that you need to do a lot of um, relationship building even prior to talking to this person. Mm-hmm. It is not as easy as going up to them and going, hey, you know, you better do this else it's gonna <laughs> impact something else. It's, it's not mm-hmm. as easy to say that. So definitely there's a lot more, um, you know, foundational science to it because you have to try and connect with them on different levels. It's not just about work. Um, so often I engage in some casual conversations as well, like figuring out what's happening in their life and showing genuine interest. I actually spoke to someone in my company and she was a wonderful salesperson in the sense that she used to meet all her quotas and she had excellent relationship with people. And Mm. when I asked her about, you know, how did your career path, you know, turn out the way it did? Because it sounds amazing. And she was like, you know what, for none of the jobs that I've ever applied, uh, sorry, ever got, I've never applied for them. And they were just because people saw how well I worked. Um, They trusted my relationship. They built that relationship with me. And therefore, they recommended me to the next step. And that's how I moved so, you know, this, this forward in my career. So it really speaks to the importance of being interested in someone else other than yourself. I think for the longest time, we've been talking about, you know, self-improvement, self-confidence, internal focus of control and all those things. But yeah. sometimes, you know, if, if you realize all your senses are focused outward, but, you know, somehow we take all those senses and we focus it inward to say, what's, what's in it for me? What am yeah. I going to do with this? How is this going to benefit me? Right. But sometimes it's good to focus all your senses outward. What are the things that I'm seeing? What are the body signals that this pe- this person has when, when you know, I'm t- interacting with them? Do they actually clench up or do they feel free and comfortable to talk with me? Um, you know, what are the things that I'm hearing from them, like reading in between lines and understanding what they're trying to say and things like that? Whenever I say certain words, how do they respond to those words? Are these hurting them? Are they, are they encouraging them and things like that? So, yeah. As, as you know, all those different roles that you mentioned, all of them have a huge component of stakeholder management, which means they really need to understand who they're interacting with. Mm-hmm. So I've invested time with people that I work with. It's, it's not just about calling them for work, but I, I do want to say that personally, I'm, I'm the kind of person that builds relationship based on trust. And that trust comes from how much of what I say lines up with what I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a massive input of integrity that you have to show because obviously when you're coming in and talking to a person the first time, we can all be nice. There are plenty of internet articles out there that tell you how to make a good first impression. But after that, how much do you follow through is what's important. And that sense of integrity is what people need to understand. If you have time for something, 
you know, promise that and deliver that. If you don't be upfront about it. Um, mm-hmm. it it's not important that, um, you know, you have to be nice all the time and not really delivering on what you have said. So integrity plays in a big time um, with this relationship building because you need to be able to deliver what you say you would. Um, yeah. And if you can't, keep them aware, keeping them in that aspect of communication. Um, Someone told me that in order to build trust with someone, you need to have at least eight different communication channels that, sorry, eight times of communication that you need to have with them. So somehow if you speak to them eight times on some important topic or something that has created an impression on them, they automatically build a relationship with you. They build that circle of trust with you. um, And that's how you, you need to progress forward. So if you know that there is a project that's coming up with the stakeholder that you've never worked with before, um, maybe, you know, call them up ahead of time and kind of say, hey, you know, I heard that um, we're going to be working on a project. Do you want to grab coffee together? Or maybe just call them casually. Well, coffee, not necessarily in all places we can do right now, but, um, you know, get get together with them in some way. And if you're able to find out more, I I know that with a lot of C-suite clients that I worked with or C-suite folks that I worked with, I tried to find out what some of the other experiences were. So these people are highly accessible to other folks as well. Like a lot of people want to talk to them. So you kind of talk to their secretary to find out, hey, you know, how does this uh, minister um, react to certain things? How do they work? What's their working style? What's their preferred style of communication? Um, And it's not necessarily gossiping about them but it's really putting a good spin to um you know connections because you yeah. really want to know like all, a lot of things sorry i i just had a um empty brain moment there but you know a lot of things cannot be assessed from linkedin all the time there's a lot right. of hidden persona behind it of course yeah. you do your d- d- due diligence and trying to find out hey you know this ministry or this person seems to have um you know worked at this organization i can talk to them about my experience and where i came from and how i believe in this cause um or you know if they have had some other personal um interest in some sort of nonprofit, um, you can talk to that and say, hey, you know, I was also involved in a similar nonprofit and then start up conversations. So it's, it's almost important to have your main job and some kind of side huddle that you know, exposes your own personality um, and be genuine when it comes to that, right? And and showing them who you are. And sometimes when I talk to people, I tell them openly because um, we're still working on the whole um, gender gap, not having enough women in, you know, the top level uh, leadership and things like that. So sometimes when I speak to my male leaders, I openly tell them, hey, you know, I know nothing about games. So I apologize. Um, and I just come across as genuine, but I tell them, you know, these are some of the other games that I've seen, or maybe that weekend I'll catch up on some game that's happening and then I'll speak to them about it it's really trying to uh, think of it as as a date right when you're going to meet someone what do you do you try to put your best behavior forward you try to make them feel comfortable and that's really what I've been trying to do personally as well and um, I don't I don't have any recent experience I've not dated in like (laughs) seven years so I'm off the game (laughs) Um, but surely you must be hearing from other people right even even when you talk to your spouse you must be like okay I need to keep her happy today let me do what she likes right so um, you know it's it's even more nice if you know your relationship continues like you know you're having your first date with your spouse every time that's even more fun Um, yes Yes. (laughs) so So, I have so I have I have one more follow-up question on that one so um so what are what are some practical tips can you can give them? So let's say um, let's let's just take a persona of a new business analyst or a new mm. product owner or new product manager, right? So you 
you gave some practical things around uh, how to um, build that connection, really understand who that person is. Maybe I'll also find out from the LinkedIn mm-hmm. common connections yep. or from their secretary if they're VP or directors, pretty much doing your homework and having multiple uh, touch points, communication with them and being proactive and saying, hey, this this is coming up. I should potentially figure out a way to like uh, communicate with them somehow, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say that the, the new BA or product owner, they execute on that. So mm-hmm. now, uh, now they actually get into a meeting. Uh, so the chit chat is done, connection points is done. So what happens if for, for folks trying to get those practical skills on how you kick off the conversation and how you mm-hmm. gather requirements or understand the pain points, uh, I'm just curious how, what's your approach uh, yeah. to, uh, uh, gathering requirements or understanding their vision. How do you do? How do you go about capturing those uh, information? For sure, yeah. So after the original chit chat, one of the key things that that initial re- uh, relationship building helps in is understanding what their vision for the project itself is. So mm-hmm. if you know that you've got ten requirements, invariably you will have you know, five different stakeholders having more interest on specific requirements versus the Mm. others. And you might have two or three where clashes come in, whereby one person might be saying it has to be done a certain way, while the other person is saying that it has to be done in a different way. Mm. Um, And when that happens, you really need to understand what are the requirements that are key and important for specific stakeholders and make sure that any changes that come to those requirements, they are kept in the loop. Um, I believe in over communicating more so than under communicating so that there are Mm -hmm. no surprises. Um, Mm -hmm. Everyone has their own style. I've worked with stakeholders who prefer picking up the phone for everything. And for some of the roles that I was in, I used to wonder, why is the phone even here? Like, I don't work with the phone anymore. Everything is on chat. Everything is on Teams. Um, why, why do we even have the phone? So um, yeah. there, there are still some stakeholders who prefer that kind of communication. And that that is what they see as personalized. So really understanding their choice of communication, how Frequently, do they want to communicate? Because they might say that, oh, I only want to hear about this, um, you know, every month because this is not the highest priority on my list. And that's fine. Um, So having that aspect and making sure you are also figuring out this is this is a weird example to give at this point, but I think it it speaks to the the research that you put in. So I don't know if you remember, but in Friends, there was this one episode where Ross does a boo-boo and he sleeps with someone else apart from Rachel right after they broke up. And then it's like him and his friend, they're trying to find out all the touch points. Like how will, how can I prevent Rachel from hearing this information um, through someone else compared to me? Yes. A funny example, but partly you have to do some of that work in, in real life as well, because When you are in a leadership position, you tend to be accountable for a lot of things that you're not directly responsible for. So for Mm. example, if I'm managing 10 product managers, they all might be um, empowered to take their own decision, but eventually the accountability of those products will lead up to me. And when I go to my leader, you don't want your leader to look like a fool in in, in front of their own leader, right? So that's basically what you're trying to mitigate. So ensuring that 
the communication goes through at the right time without slipping through some kind of grapevine where he where that person might be hearing from someone else um, goes a long way because they feel more confident in you. They feel more um, trusty, trustworthy in you in, in the sense that they know the, that you have their back. That's essentially what we're trying to build here. Um, another practical tip that I would suggest is document all the key decisions that you're making. So often when it comes to these kind of clashes, if you don't understand the why behind a specific decision, um, then it really becomes a political game. And there are different ways of dealing with the political side of things. But if there was a rational decision that was being made, and generally in product management, um, I have been in, uh, I've been fortunate enough not to get into the political side of things, but really understanding why a certain decision was made document that and make sure everyone understands the why because 10 days down if that why changes then you have to come back to the table to take a decision again if you continue with that same decision it could have some downstream repercussions that you as the business analyst or you as the product manager will be responsible for and mm. you don't want that kind of um, you know something like that to slip through the cracks so understanding the why behind key decisions are very important they have to be documented um, the third thing that I would recommend when it comes to stakeholders is treating them just like any other audience that you work with. Um, you don't need to go into too much detail if they don't need that kind of detail. Um, when I worked in the government, one thing that I really enjoyed and struggled with was the fact that before we get to the topmost layer of the minister who was hearing about the project, we would go through eight dry runs before that because every leader that I was going through and every person on the table wanted to review the document with me, wanted to review uh, and make sure that the right message was going through because this was really important. We were working with taxpayers' money. Um, there was a lot of accountability at stake here and the government was also changing at that point in time. So there were lots of different factors involved, but the more dry runs you have, I know it feels like, First time when I was doing it, I felt very painful because it was it was just like, oh, my God, it's just one piece of information that I need to pass over. Why am I doing the drill again and again? And it was eight times of doing that it was very, very painful. Uh, did you reach all the way to Trudeau? Like, was, how, <laughs> no, how, like, I did not. No, I did eight. not. <laughs> but I did have a lot of uh, key stakeholders and um, yeah. they all had different viewpoints in terms of how the requirement had to be done. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the reason why we did it multiple times. And it helped me understand each layer of importance in there. What is it that they really wanted out of that requirement? And mm -hmm. that translates a lot into how you will communicate back to them. This is the part where empathy comes in. If mm -hmm. I know that this person is only uh, interested in ABC of the 26 alphabets, the next time I speak to them, I'm only going to speak about ABC. Mm -hmm. So the first time I did it, it was super painful, but I took my lessons away. And the next time when I was presenting it to them, I focused exactly on those slides that they were most interested in. Mm. That shows that you are respecting their time because you're not going through a 20 page slide deck every time that shows that you're listening for things that they have. They may not have verbally told you. They will not verbally tell you that these three are the only slides I'm interested in, <laughs> but it's your perception of what they are interested in. Therefore, you respected their time to talk about that. And number three, they will trust you more because next time when I go in with a change or a suggestion of, hey, you know, I think the UX should be this way or the cu customer experience should be this way, they'll trust you because now they realize that you understand what kind of 
pain they have or what kind of job they do. And mm. therefore, it became even more easier for me when I went the next time trying to convince them to pick a specific solution that I was recommending. Mm -hmm. So just that that little bit of, um, you know, understanding in terms of bringing your empathy, putting a cap on in terms of saying, OK, what will this person think about this? What will this person think about this? Um, takes it a long way in terms of building trust, uh, building mutual respect and also mm. having that common understanding. So those would be some you. key tips. Yeah. So Manu, uh, I want to add this. So this is, we just talked a lot about like one-on-one uh, -on -one if you are trying to do one-on-one -on -one meeting, right? What, what does that look like when you have a group of stakeholders and different things are important to different stakeholders yeah. and you are facilitating that as a BA or a uh, scrum master or a product owner? How, how does that, yeah, any tips on that? Of course. Um, so personally, I do feel that in the beginning, you should spend some time one-on-one. -on -one. How mm. many times you do that is really up to you, depending on um, how much more you're going to be working on the stakeholders or how many layers you have to peel for a specific role. But I would definitely recommend at least one meeting one-on-one -on -one only because it gives you a chance to be personable. You're not sitting in a group setting, which is much harder. Um, mm. You're also talking to someone who is... <laughs> for the lack of a better term, above your pay grade, right? So it's yeah. almost like you're giving them special attention. Now, how much time they're going to have to allocate to you is a different story. But it's good to do that initial piece at least once. Um, the next time when you come in, as part of those one-on-one -on -one conversations, I'm hoping that you have an overall high-level picture of what the process flow looks like. Mm -hmm. So it, you know exactly where their inputs are, you know exactly where their outputs are, and so on and so forth. So invest some time in building some visual um cues for them, visual maps for them. So process flow chart, uh, building some sort of customer personas that you can explicitly post on the wall before you get these people in a meeting room. Um, you know, even having like a live simulation. What I did for one of them was I recorded the entire video of what the customer flow would look like. And I was playing it on loop in the background. Mm. So every time we were having a conversation, mm. I would just wait for like another two, three seconds until their part came up and I would show them this is the reason why. And it gave them a mm. visual view of what it was. The use of parking lot. So when you're sitting in a room, um, have a chart that says, okay, we are going to time box this because all of your timing is important. Um, we don't want to be rambling on about one specific decision. And therefore, if we cannot resolve something in five minutes, that's going to go up on the parking lot. We'll revisit if we have more time. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it might also mean that you have to do a bit more investigation. And that's just something that you work out as part of your facilitation. The other thing that I would recommend in the room is having a scribe because it's very hard to be a facilitator and scribe at the same time. Um, if everyone is willing to, then you can even record the session. Um, there was one company that I worked with where they were open to me taping it. We didn't do a video recording, but we taped the conversation. Um, and that helped me fill in any notes that we had. Of course, I mm. took, used my words very carefully because the next time you go into a meeting with them, you don't want to say, I have you on the record saying this, <laughs> but have a more um, you know, casual conversation saying that I think the last time we talked about this and you know, this time this has changed, what changed between last time and this time, and something may genuinely have. So um, make sure you're not referring that recording again and again, because it can make 
people feel less um, comfortable speaking their mind and you don't want them to push to that ex um, extreme. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, using those kind of tips would be really good. And yeah. if you have a second facilitator, sometimes that helps too. Um, because what happens is when there are multiple people talking and I've, I've been in a room where I had up to 15 stakeholders in one meeting mm. and at times side conversations used to take place. And, you know, my second facilitator used to step in and kind of make sure they're listening. If it's something important, they would kind of cue to me and I would stop the other conversation or vice versa. So we used to balance the dynamics that way too. Got so. You. I would recommend like anywhere it's, it's similar to a scrum master to developer agile kind of ratio, right? Anything yeah. more than five to eight, it becomes too hard for you to manage. So if you yeah. know that you're going to have a big group, make sure you have someone for backup as well. That's a good recommendation, mm -hmm. uh, Banu, because, you know, let's say even if you're a product owner, you can always, um, you know, ask the scrum master or a business analyst as, Hey, can you can you scribe the meeting and can you also act like a co-facilitator? So there's yeah. certain elements of planning that you probably do before. Yeah. Um, so no, that's that's really helpful. Mm -hmm. So let's go into let's stay in the stakeholder because you know, it's it's a very important piece of the analyst or product work, right? Um, so earlier you said there are multiple different, you know, four or five, there might be four or five different uh, stakeholders mm -hmm. and different things might be important to them, mm -hmm. right? And you are just one, you're, you're one person trying to facilitate between you know, multiple stakeholders and you have a certain influence with the development team, right? Mm -hmm. So what are, what have you done in terms of like negotiating with, uh, negotiating with them or influencing the leadership because at the end of the day, they might have a, a certain viewpoint of the product, one element, but as a product person, you see the end-to-end -end value. Yeah. Um, so how do you uh, negotiate, influence the, the stakeholders? Uh, team? Yeah. Yeah. Um, one way with negotiation that is, you know, flat out easy for me to do, actually two, two of them. One is how do I tie it to the final metrics of the product itself? Mm. Um, if some of the requirements that they're asking are kind of going away from what the final metric is trying to achieve or trying to measure, um, then it's a clear decision. It's easier for me to negotiate that saying that I don't deny that you are going through this pain. But perhaps this is not the requirement where this is supposed to be captured. We need to come up with a different solution that works along with that. Mm -hmm. um, going further down in terms of, you know, the fishbone diagram, it's something that I use for my Lean and Six Sigma toolkit is that you keep asking the why, 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 why until there's nothing more for you to go dig deeper. So trying to find out why they want a certain requirement is really important. And then seeing how that maps to your final metric um, is an easy one to kind of figure out because they will see the same thing. Like if they don't see their ask being mapped in that final metric, they'll be like, okay, that makes sense. Let's look at some other solution or maybe I'm not happy to sign off on this, but I want to see something different. And that is still a, you know, a point of truce, if you will, for the lack of a better term. Um, yeah. The second thing that I usually tap into is data analytics. Any kind mm. of data that you can get your hands on. In fact, until I really understood the concepts of leadership principles and influential leadership and negotiation, I, I still don't think I'm great at that, but it's, it's a process of learning because at every point you'll meet some new human who provides you with a new challenge and you were like, okay, 10 years of whatever I learned, let me just throw that away because this is going to be brand new, right? Um, yeah. 
So every person that you meet with, they're going to provide you with new challenges or new ways of looking at things, which is the beauty of empathy is that the more you embrace it, the more you learn and grow. But uh, data analytics is, is my second thing to go to is um, if you have your hands on any kind of data that you can grab and kind of show them, hey, that's not what the data is saying. It's saying something different. Um, should we be measuring something else? Can we do a quick pilot of figuring out why you think this way and if this is indeed the case? Mm. Pilots are one of my favorite things to do. You know, they are time boxed. They have an exact uh, purpose of why you're doing something. And if it doesn't meet that, it's not a failure in any way because it's almost like you're going in with a hypothesis, either the hypothesis is true or it's not. Mm. Um, so, you know, going in with some sort of understanding with how data is or even market research helps quite a bit. So if you're able to do focus groups mm. um, or pull out some sort of customer segmentation data, that has been one of my strongest points when it comes to negotiation until I understood concepts of influential leadership and identifying value. Um, the next thing, obviously, I would say is identifying the value for them. What is it that they're trying to get out of this? You have mm -hmm. to get a good understanding of that. And perhaps sometimes sometimes what has happened, an example that I can mention is um, I used to be part of a team that did regular updates to the CRM system that um, in, in the company. And at one point, one of the stakeholders said, I absolutely want to do this. And then I realized that that specific change was impacting a whole bunch of other people. Mm. When I got everyone together, um, they were basically saying, I don't even understand why you're calling the other people because I was the one who initially asked for this. And then now you're bringing in a whole bunch of other people who, who shouldn't be having any say over this. Um, but at the end of the day, I had to show him like, you know, this is the value that you're bringing in. You are upgrading the system. It's going to cost us, you know, a certain amount to do that. But then you have to understand the value that comes out of it. And if that's a value that can be shared across the organization, and if all of us are doing better, why not? Um, Got you. So showing them the end value of what they're trying to impact. And I, I think most of my stakeholders have been very understanding in that respect because they tend to work a lot with the, uh, you know, the final users of the product um, or the internal team that's supporting that. But sometimes you do need to bring that concept back because, you know, they might be thinking that they're the only ones using it and therefore why should we be involving the entire world? Um, so you need to show them the value. You need to show them the impact. And sometimes uh, negotiation has also worked when I show them the worst possible scenario. So I will tell them, okay, if you go down this path, if everything goes well, this is what will happen. Hooray, yay for you, all is well. But if it doesn't go well, this is the worst case scenario. However, if you were to take an alternate route, then this is the best case scenario. But this worst case scenario that you're dealing with is much better than the previous one that you suggested. So sometimes just showing them, you know, um, I love doing some kind of like manual Monte Carlo simulations, which is basically saying, what if, what if, what if, right? Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, that's how you do risk mitigation. And anyone who has done a lot of requirements work, they'll understand that when you fail to plan, you plan to fail. Meaning the more work you put in your requirements, the less um, changes that you have to make later in the day. And therefore, if you run all your risk scenarios, as much as you know, you can't figure out everything, but all the crucial ones, if you can run them and show them all the different ways that things can go wrong, mm. then, you know, this is what it is. Got and you. Last thing, sorry, I wanted to mention is yeah. <laughs> one more thing, which I learned yeah. in my class, which I thought was pretty interesting is yeah. whenever you're thinking about negotiation, think about the other side, again, bringing in the concept of empathy is how much is the other person losing and how much are you losing? 
And sometimes it's a matter of showing them, hey, you know, if you are losing $1,000, I'm losing $2,000. Yeah. Think about what that's going to do to our relationship. Do you really want to go this path, right? Not not in those exact terms, but right. giving them an idea of I'm trying to understand you. Why don't you step out of your box a bit and try to understand me? Absolutely. So showing them what that loss factor is on both sides can also help with negotiation. Sorry. I yeah. No, that's that's great, Vanu. I no, I I I um I have a few follow up questions, but one one thing that jumped out is like you talked about risk mitigation and kind of showing them you know, because people are very risk averse, right? So like, how do you make that risk real for them? Like the tactical, like, do you show them? Like, what do you show them? How, what kind of analysis do you show them? How do you prepare? Mm-hmm. And um, and how do you, how do you communicate uh, that? And how do you mitigate? How do you also come up with a solution for them? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So risk is an interesting thing because not every risk needs to be mitigated. Um, mm-hmm. We think that, you know, every risk that's coming, we have to protect it. For example, I now have a niece, so I, I try to use a lot of baby examples here. Yeah. Now, the risk that you're mitigating is that she shouldn't fall down anywhere and break her head. But am I going to be holding her up at every time of the day and not let her build her immunity? No, I'm not going to do that. Right. So I'm going to let her have one or two knocks, but I'm not going to purposely drop her on her head on the floor. Right. (laughs) Horrible analogy. But what I'm trying to get at is just in in terms of life, that's how projects are as well, is there are some risks that you can actively remove and you find a solution for that and you fix it. That's good. There are some risks that will keep happening. It's almost like, you know, I own a car. It is going to rust when I keep it outside. I cannot do anything about it. I'll just do my maintenance that's required and it will be fine. As long as, you know, nothing untoward happens, my car is fine. So that's a risk that you just have to absorb, accept and move on. And then Hmm. there are other risks that you can't do anything about. Like you cannot protect yourself from any drunk drivers out there. They're going to be out there, right? And you have to keep safe. The only thing that you can do is strengthen yourself in defensive driving, maybe. And if you see something crazy happening on the street, you know exactly how to react. Get an SUV. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So that's how you need to think about the the risks in the project as well, is what are the things that I can solve? What are the things Mm -hmm. I can... Um, you know, work around and what are the things that I cannot avoid? Mm-hmm. And um, when you're having those continuous conversations with your stakeholder, it's good to bring these things up and kind of tell them, hey, you know, I cannot control how the market will turn, but these are the different ways that we have set up our system to, you know, detect any changes out there. And then based on that, we can take some steps because all these have to be a reactive type of measure. But there are some other items that can be a proactive type of measure whereby I would always keep a safe uh, amount of money um, saved so that I'm not struggling on a rainy day. Um, And that's going to help me at some point in time. So risk is something similar. It, It comes out of multiple conversations. Um, and showing and sharing this with the stakeholder is just being frank, um, not hiding things. Um, I know there are some things that you don't really want to go and tell them up front going, hey, you know, we're working on a solution, but I know that it's not going to work. You don't want to talk like that to, to a stakeholder. But telling them that, hey, these are some genuine concerns. We're still working around them. Um, this is how bad it's going to impact if it blows. Um, if it doesn't, mm. then, you know, we'll be fine. And, and just yeah. giving them that idea, I think, at the end of the day, think think of yourself as a parent again, right? Like, you know that your kid is going to
to go out and have uh, have drinks out there before you allow them. They are going to go out and party. They are going to be exposed to all these things. But what you can do is have a good relationship with them so that they're comfortable enough to come and tell you that they're doing something so that you'll be like, okay, I'm not very comfortable with this, but I know you have to live your life. Do it. And if something bad happens, at least I know where to come get you. Right. Thank you. And that's exactly what, that's the kind of relationship we need to have with our stakeholders is that you don't need to tell them about every little thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't need to hide. What, what you're trying to prevent is hiding everything from them. That's risky. Um, but if you tell them what it is and you tell them, you know, a good amount of, hey, if this happens and this is what's going to happen and create that relationship whereby they trust you as the expert. Um, in saying that, okay, I hired you because you're an expert in this area. I will leave it to you to come and tell me when things go wrong. Um, and that's really how I would present it because it's, it's hard to mitigate and show them the full effect of everything, but at least they are in the know-how in the loop in communication that that should take you a long way in terms of building your relationship. Got you. No, thanks that you give us a lot. Like that's, (laughs) that's a lot of good stuff that I'm sure the audience will be able to take that. Uh, in their work and then they're also in their interviews as well. Mm-hmm. Um, another question that I have in this same topic, let's go a little bit deeper. Um, let's talk about giving bad news or saying no to stakeholders. Yeah. What's your approach? How do you say, how do you decline requests, say no, say this is a crazy idea, you're crazy or <laughs> just flat out, we're not going to prioritize it. How do you give bad? How do you like to give bad news? Yeah. So bad news, again, I go back to the value proposition. Identifying the value in a project has helped me quite a bit. And when I work through all these different scenarios where people come and ask me things, it helps me reiterate why I'm doing something. And when I reiterate that in my mind, it becomes easier and easier for me to identify that something is not good enough. I think that's the first step. As product managers and as BAs, it's very hard to identify what is a good idea and what's not a good idea. And Mm -hmm. then Should this good idea be part of phase one, phase two, phase three? Where is it that I have to do? And should I not be doing that at all? Like understanding those layers are very um, important. And it's not something that comes easily because as a product manager, I'll be like, hey, that does sound like a good idea. I myself want to do it. But maybe the product itself doesn't need something like that. And how do you do Mm -hmm. that? That's almost like a viability assessment that you're doing. Like, does it make sense to include it at this point? Mm -hmm. Um, The concept of identifying the MVP. So iterating the value of the product to yourself multiple times um, uh, is is very important. And that will help you eliminate that first layer of confusion whereby you wonder whether to include it or not. Yeah. Uh, So once you have identified that, then it's a matter of communicating that information back to the stakeholder as well. Like I acknowledge that, you know, uh, this is a good idea, but based on our MVP, these are the metrics that we're trying to achieve right now. By putting this specific feature in there, it's not really ticking any of the boxes here. It is giving some value, but it's not making a large difference in any of these uh, metrics that we're trying to measure as part of the MVP. So that's Mm -hmm. the first thing that I would say. The second thing is, um, you know, if they're really insistent, I'll go back and try and find out what's the effort involved. Mm. So understanding whether some of these things are low hanging fruits or is it giving a good ROI, meaning for the amount of effort that I put in, am I getting the right kind of result back? Um, Giving them those ideas, ideas of those metrics and saying that, hey, you know, this is not really giving us good benefits. So why even look into this? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The third thing is bouncing it off as an anonymous idea in the team. 
telling them that say, hey, you know, I don't I don't disagree with your idea, um, but let's take a vote. I won't tell anyone where this idea came from, but let's just ask and what what the feedback is, because ultimately you're not the only stakeholder. There are five other stakeholders who have pitched in their time, effort and money. They're paying for the project. So I need to make sure think of it in my viewpoint that I need to make sure everyone else agrees with this specific requirement. Um, mm. And usually at that point, you know, something does get cut down because someone might come back and say, I don't disagree with the requirement, but then this is not going to be working because this is going to be clashing with something else, or this is not the MVP. This is not what we paid for. There might be a technical constraint. So once you open it to the larger group, usually I get more ammunition to kind of say, these are the reasons why. And I think for a person who is passionate enough in your product and project in coming up with an idea to make it better, um, this is the basic level of due diligence that you should do to give them a valid reason why their idea hasn't been taken up. Um, this cannot be prioritized, I find, is a relatively um, weaker reason without giving the you know, the, the reason why it can't be prioritized. And the only reason I say that is prioritization is very subjective. We decide what we want to do right now. Um, yeah. And therefore, based on your decision, you are saying that this cannot be important, but there has to be something stronger than that not just someone's gut feeling. So, um, you know, you, you have to deal it with a bit more softly. It's, it's not about a soft blow or a hard blow, but it's really giving them good validation. And that should go into one of your decision um, lists as well in saying that the reason we rejected this specific idea was because of this, this, this. Um, and when they realize that they're getting that kind of visibility and that kind of importance, I think that again will roll back into a more trusting relationship because they'll know that if they come up with an idea, you are doing your right due diligence, respecting them for what they said, and then therefore also respect them to say no. I don't. I don't want them to take. I, I don't want to take them on a wild goose chase whereby I'm like, yeah, 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 we'll take a look at it. We'll put that in. But, you know, a year goes by, two years go by, and we never prioritize that. And they're just sitting there waiting. Um, yeah. So I think it's decent to, you know, do all the work that you need to do, put it up front and tell them this is why it is. And this is the reason why we can't proceed. So usually opening it up to the rest of the group as an anonymous idea um, generally gave me enough ammunition to tell them why not. So that has always been my last um, last resort to do it. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's those are those are plenty of ways, you know, with with tactical ways and with data and, you know, with obviously, you know, showing them what they're going to lose by this is a bad idea. But then also bringing back to our first question with empathy, why is it important yes. to them and how how will they take it? Just having that uh, understanding uh, that probably helps you. Yes. So, yes. For yeah. Sure. Thanks for making that real. Yeah. <laughs> so Anu, um, let's wrap this up. Let's wrap up this conversation of stakeholders. And if you, like, what does the overall theme of stakeholders mean to you? Yeah. So stakeholders just means anyone who can be impacted by what you're trying to do here. And mm -hmm. usually we start thinking of, you know, my boss and you know yeah. the people who are paying for the project and that's well and fine but they are not necessarily the users of the product right um, mm -hmm. and that's the one thing that we fail to understand is that these are the people who you have to report to as part of your performance management and things like that and that's good to have them in the know and um, they might even give you a lot of direction because they have been leaders at the company prior to you and they might have that knowledge to tap in mm -hmm. but understanding you know who are going to be the final users of the product 
product? Who are the people who are going to be maintaining this product on an ongoing basis? Um, who are the people who will have to upgrade? You know, even folks like in your IT help desk who are negotiating the vendor contracts um, for the specific product, even they are users of this product and stakeholders in some way, because the more functionality or features that you're building, the more they have to start considering within the contract. Am I giving mm -hmm. them five features? Are these features standalone? Um, mm -hmm. Can I give them one, but not two? Can I give them X, but not Y? Um, you know, how does that whole contract negotiation takes place? How will my consultants, the people who are helping the clients to set it up in, in their, um, you know, instance, how are they going to be interacting with it? Um, apart from that, what are the kinds of businesses that are there that complement my product? So for example, Apple comes up with a new version, but then there are so many businesses that are building complementary accessories for Apple. So it's mm -hmm. not just about Apple themselves, but it's all these side businesses that are dependent on them. How will the image and branding of Apple change based on their experience with some of these other products? Um, you know, how will the app store change? Even app store is a kind of stakeholder for you, albeit mm. smaller than some of the other people that you work with. But Apple has some stringent standards on what the app needs to look like if you're going to submit it as part of their um, repository, right? Um, or even your competitors. Your competitors are a stakeholder too, because based on what they're doing in the market, a lot of things that you will do changes. You will have to be proactive in some cases. You will have to be reactive in some cases. Mm -hmm. um, so when we think about some aspects of the economics of a product, we talk about supplementary products. We talk about complementary products. How will my product be replaced by something else in the market? So mm -hmm. you might have created a product thinking that this is niche. This is not going to be something that anyone has ever seen before. But you know, it was um, I, I can't remember what movie this was in, but they were talking about you know a. a pen that was designed to be used in space because mm. usually the pen needs the ink needs gravity for it to fall down um, and that's the reason why they designed a new pen which can be used in space where there is no gravity and someone came by and said well why didn't they just use a pencil they don't even need to use a pen that will pull gravity and like a few scenes later in the movie they'll be like oh the pens nip uh, the pencils um, lead can break off and that can be dangerous in space so all these little things right the simple things can be used to replace something that's much more complex yes. so when you think about those things, all these people play into your stakeholder. It's almost like you're doing a quick market analysis of what are all the humans that would be impacted. Um, and then based on that, you start thinking about how you want to manage the communication, how you want to watch them. It's not just about communicating to them, but it's also about how you want to monitor their behavior. For example, the competitor analysis is a subset mm -hmm. of stakeholder management, in my opinion, because mm. they're really stakeholders are impacted in some way, but you mm -hmm. want to watch them because you don't want them to take over the market share that you're vying for. Um, yeah. So that's how I would classify stakeholders to be is, is the whole ecosystem that's going to be impacted based on what you're building. Yeah, know that was uh, a really insightful insightful conversation thank you so much for having this and yes uh we already have so many topics for the second podcast yeah but i uh, really appreciate your time manu and we will do this soon yes thank thanks so much vivek i had lots of fun talking to you <laughs>